my fellow Westorians. It's time for another installment in the Duncan Egg series. Valar Reredus for Duncan Egg returns with The Mystery Night Part 1. Let's see what today brings us, A, my fellow Westorians. With us as, almost as always, is Sean of House Beard. And what are you drinking today, my friend, on this fine Mystery Night Sunday? You know, it's possible that this is a mix I've had before. <gasps> this particular concoction is the protein berry naked drink plus black raspberry sparkling ice plus classic Mountain Dew. <laughs> That's funny. You said protein berry. We were just talking offline about the expanse and the proto molecule. So you have, to me, that's proto berry. <laughs> <laughs> Don't. Uh... I drink the proto molecule. <laughs> Would you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure that's a good idea, Sean. <laughs> I didn't say it's a good idea. I said I'd do it. <laughs> touche, touche. <laughs> well, let's, uh, let's have some fun with this story. We're going to get into, as we usually do, start off with some meta. We'll discuss a little bit of our intro thoughts, and then we'll take it sort of scene by scene with a lot of our usual combining of topics throughout, picking the different plot threads and taking them all the way as far as they go. Lots of parallels. I can mix topics. I can mix topics like I mix drinks. <laughs> you sure can. That's right. And well, and we'll have a lot of fun along the way. Of course, you guys can ask questions. You can send them ahead of time as usual through Flick or Patreon or Slack or Discord or Facebook or Twitter or Gmail. And of course, you can ask them live if you attend these live streams. Every Sunday at 3 Eastern is when we do them. There is a small exception. Occasionally, we don't have an episode. Next week, we will not have an episode, but we'll be back the week after with Sean in studio with us. We'll be sitting side by side, sort of like the old days. Sean will be in Atlanta. Thanks, as usual, to Nina for her invaluable help on constructing our episode documents and helping me think through a lot of the conundrums and mysteries within each story. Uh, over on goodqueenalley.tumblr.com, you can find her thoughts on a variety of topics. One of particular note from last time we spoke is on the different styles of dreams and writing styles George uses uh, for Damon II, the feature of this story, that is, and Daron the Drunken, who, of course, featured in The Hedge Knight and has been mentioned in a few other spots as well. All right, folks, let's get to it. Uh, like I said, we'll start with the meta. There's a recap, and Sean, you noted that this story has a very solid recap in it, and we discussed this offline. It's pretty handy to have that, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. I I've mentioned several times that I think that uh, Martin does a good job at refreshing the audience or, and or accounting for an audience that might be reading this for the first time, that uh, when you have books that are coming out far apart, or even TV shows before the days of you know, Netflix or whatever, when you hadn't, you hadn't seen an episode since a year past or whatever, you might need a little bit of a refreshing of what's going on. And these books that Martin releases are sometimes many, many years yeah. apart. And you pointed out even that this particular series wasn't even like released as a series per se. It was the stories released in other collections that someone might have bought that collection, read the story about George Martin, and have no idea that uh, the Hedge Knight even exists. Yeah, you know? absolutely. That's a huge factor. You're, you're right as well to point out the distance between these. I mean, heck, TV shows will be like last time on. And that's yeah. only <laughs> a week apart. You know, this is seven years apart in real time because The Sworn Sword was in 2003. This was March 2010 that The Mystery Knight was published. 
But yeah, as you said, anthologies, that's a big deal here. This was in the Warriors anthology. There's been three Warriors anthologies. The second and third don't have any sort of Game of Thrones thing in them, but uh, they're, they're still very solid. This one actually won an award. The 2011 Locust Magazine Award. Locust has been around for almost 50 years. They're like maybe a year or two short of 50 years, if I remember correctly. I might not be. Maybe they've already made it. But they used to be sort of a, like a feeder to the Hugo Awards, but over time they developed into their own thing. So the Locust Awards are pretty prestigious these days in fantasy sci-fi. So Warriors, this, in other words, I'm suggesting that the stories beyond this one are worth reading in Warriors. Yeah, so like you said, someone could just be reading that anthology and turn the page and be like, hmm, the mystery night. Well, that sounds interesting. <laughs> I'll check this out. And well, you know, they need a little backdrop. In addition, by the way, even when I, even in modern times, right? When I am like even uh, binging a show on Netflix or something, I still kind of like to see the previously on because it's kind of a clue is what the, the creators, where, where are the leading us? You know what yeah. I mean? Like even if you had read these books right in a row, even if you have a photographic memory <laughs> you know, of all the <laughs> dense information that George gives us, you still don't necessarily know to relate all the different pieces of it. You know? yeah. So it's good to reiterate key things, to, to remind the audience of foundational knowledge or whatever. Yeah, like a, like a primer almost, or remind yeah. people, especially when there's so many plot threads and series that have a lot of different things going on, it kind of helps me like, okay, this is kind of where we're going to be at today. It might also be ways for him to new ideas, new pieces of it that he's come up with over the years to reincorporate it. Uh, restating of something in the past still might include some new information. Yeah, absolutely. So we paired The Hedge Knight with The Clash of Kings, explained why at the time a lot of it was to do with when they were written very close to each other. The Sworn Sword pairs pretty well with The Feast for Crows, as we explained during that. I wouldn't pair this one directly with any of the books nearly as much. Rather, it's a blending of the prior books. You can really see elements of all five here pretty distinctly if you're looking for it, which we did. Seeing, <laughs> seeing Bloodraven on screen so close to when he appears on screen in The Dance with Dragons gives us a bit of a touchstone there, right? He's in The Dance with Dragons, laid in it, and he's here. And these books came out about a year apart. So there you go. So does Tyrion's connection to the new quote-unquote Blackfire Rebellion that's happening under his nose and under everyone else's noses there, carried out by John Connington and the Golden Company. We'll see a number of connections to that plot line as well here. For the Clash of Kings vibes, Damon II has a lot of Renly in him, as well as the sexual orientation. He's got the big charisma, easy personality, just very friendly, you know? outgoing, all these kind of things, quick to compliment other people, things like that. So you can really see a lot of those same hallmark uh, personality traits there. And the heck, the ba Baratheons began as a bastard branch of the Targaryens um, 300 years ago. So let's not forget that connection either. Now, Renly obviously had a much bigger army. Wait, hold on. Yeah. Can we talk about that sure, for a second? Yeah. I, I didn't know that, that the Baratheons didn't exist before the Targaryens showed up. Right. The huh. What happened was Aegon the Conqueror had a... He's a rumored bastard brother, but it's pretty much... The, the rumored part is most, usually left out that these days. There's no like alternate possibility because we don't know what else it could be. Anyway, he was... When enough time passes, it matters less. Right. <laughs> and in any case... Uh, he was really close to Aegon. His name was Oris Baratheon. And this guy was one of Aegon's key generals. And he was sent to take Storm's End along with 
Rhaenys. And they succeeded in doing so. Oris married the last daughter of the Storm King. Forcibly, of course. That's, you know, how those things go. And uh, so she, he like fought to the death and died. And then she was the only descendant left of that house. So the Durandins had ruled Storm's End for a huge amount of time. So he took over that lineage by marrying her and renaming it Baratheon. But, he, but they already had the sigil. Okay. So like, it was sort of like a, a rebranding <laughs> with the new bloodline inserted and, t- and the top spot. Did this Ori's come from Essos or yeah. was he from? He was, West- he was okay. Valyrian. Yeah, he was. Well, he would have been born at Dragonstone because, you know, the, the Targaryens had been on Dragonstone for 100 years by the time Aegon conquered. So he wouldn't have been from Essos. He would have been from Dragonstone, but his heritage was Essos. You know, they, they had been there for so long and had only moved somewhat recently. So that's pretty cool, huh? No, it's very possible that's something that you told me 10 years ago (laughs) (laughs) and didn't fully sink in. I I knew that the Baratheons had uh, lineage through the Targaryens, but I didn't know the details of it. Right on, okay. So Renly had a bigger army, but uh, they were both undone by treachery, right? Led by a sorceress individual colored in red and white. Of course, Melisandre and Bloodraven. And before that, A Class of Kings also features Brienne's defeat of Loras to win a spot in the Rainbow Guard. Brienne has unrequited feelings for Renly, while here it's in reverse. John the Fiddler wants to recruit Duncan the Tall for his King's Guard and his bed, but that too is unrequited. <laughs> so whenever we think of Brienne and her, we think of her chapters, that means a Feast for Crows. So there's plenty of a Feast for Crows vibes here. Of course, slumming it as a hedge knight, you know, living amongst people who are not people of means always brings to memory those chapters. And of course, I think of a Game of Thrones a lot here. Duncan Egg randomly stumble on a Blackfire conspiracy, which reminds us of Arya stumbling on Varus and Illyria, who are also involved in Blackfire-ish plotting, also trying to start a civil war. Catelyn randomly encounters Tyrion, also in the Riverlands, like this story, and unwittingly helps them ride along when Tywin brutally overreacts to starting a civil war, right? So, <laughs> and for Ned Stark, We have a very similar sort of of fish-out-of-water situation. A man too pure for plotting and intrigue is thrust into the midst of a big plot filled with intrigue. It's the same thing as Dunk is in a lot of ways. Ned isn't thick, but there are certain things he's not experienced with, naive about. He's smart in other areas. Ned, Dunk, they have some of those things in common. These are mysteries too big for them. Ned was unable to properly unravel the mystery of Varus and the parentage and all that stuff. And well, a mystery too big for Dunk. That's really saying something. (laughs) Now, and just as Master of Whispers Varus disguised himself and tried to steer Ned, we have Maynard Plum, who will go through the details of why he's Bloodraven, trying to guide Dunk, even helping him while achieving these larger goals in the process. Heck, we even have Ned, John Connington, and Dunk all keeping a version of a secret Targaryen. Dunk's is named Egg, but is truly named Aegon. Ned's is named John, but might be named Aegon or Aemon uh, or just John. John's is named Aegon and might be Blackfire. So wait, John's is Ned's and John's is Aegon. Yeah, there's lots of John's, lots of Aegon's. <laughs> you know, that was a thought I had too. Uh, how many other John's do we know of or any other John's tied up to hidden identities? Maybe not. That's a good question. Yeah. Yeah, I guess we have John. This John is J-O-H-N. That's John Snow, J-O-N. But still, you're right. That's That's kind of a little bit of a parallel here too and of course this john uh dyes his hair black which makes him sort of a pairing for john snow <laughs> at least temporarily and then of course bittersteel keeper of a 
not secret Blackfire is, well, he's actually staying out of this one. And that's interesting, too, because while he clearly can't tell Damon what to do, he kept the sword, which both implies he has a lot of power in this situation and, you know, also might be a bit of a parallel to um, what's going on with Illyrio um, because House Targaryen still doesn't have that sword back, but Illyrio and Varys might have it. As well, Ned's story early on has a tournament, <laughs> one with a mystery or two, like a Sir Hugh of the Vale, which kind of turns out to be a false mystery. But overall, it didn't go very well for him. Dunk didn't end up in a dungeon for his stubborn brand of goodness like Ned did, but Sir Glendon did. It's a similar twist, right? Uh, for a similar but more fiery attitude. Ned lost his head for getting caught up in all this. Dunk almost did too. You know, it was a lance to the head, almost uh, caved his skull in. Um, and of course, last but not least, a storm of swords. The example of a notion of a tournament used to cover some greater event like a discussed rebellion is explored when we talk about the tournament of Harrenhal, which is raised in a storm of swords. And of course, a lot of drama happened in that tournament, setting up future events and conflicts, but it didn't actually set up the rebellion. The, that was kind of aborted like this one. Even more notable in terms of a Storm of Swords comps is how this story pairs so well with the Red Wedding. I think that's perhaps the best pairing of all. It's not nearly as bloody, of course. It's pretty light on the blood. It does have some, but it's not a... Compared to the Red Wedding, it's, it's a high bar to clear there. But again, we're still in the Riverlands. Again, we have Freys, including a Frey Bride and Betrayals, Frey Betrayals and other Betrayals. And both stories actually have the Walder Frey. <laughs> That's right. The betrayals. <laughs> the betrayals. Yes, betrayals. Very good. <laughs> One of many things we'll explore in Duncan Egg's excellent adventure is whether young Walder got the inspiration for his famous bloody betrayal from this event, this black wedding. And lastly, on a minor note, Rob Stark was leading his men north to fight the Ironborn, and he stopped off for a wedding. This story begins as Duncan Egg are heading north to fight the Ironborn, but they stop off for a wedding. Yeah, how about that? So, Sean, what's your initial take on this story? Like, how does it compare to the past ones? How does it stand on its own? Things like that. Take it away. I love it just like I love all of them. Uh, <laughs> just it has like? more. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I truly just can't decide which one I like the best. I think this one is, in, in a lot of ways, it's easier to compare and contrast to the first one because they're both centered around tournaments. Yeah. I, I almost want to say this one is my favorite, but I feel it's unfair because it just has more material, mm, you know, yeah. and it also has the others to build on. So, but maybe I should just consider it doesn't matter the reasons it, it, why it's my favorite. It's my favorite. Also, just the nature of list making. If I'm going to recommend one to someone, I'm going to recommend the Hedge Knight first. Yeah. You know I mean? <laughs> Even if this is my favorite, it's still going to read, read order, the Hedge Knight yeah. first. You'll get to this eventually. So. <laughs> yeah, it'd be weird to like do your favorite like your order of favorite Star Wars movies and then, and then actually tell people that's the order that should be watched. It's like, what? Wait, no, you should still watch them yeah. in order. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I tend to agree with you because this one is like, I lean, I sort of feel like this one might be my favorite. It's hard to say that for sure. It has so much innuendo and inside jokes. It's perhaps the best to reread, right? That Maybe that's the case. That's, like overall. That's exactly what I was going to say. Okay, yeah. Well, what, what's that? Why would you say that? I mean, for a number of reasons, but one is that the hidden identities of certain characters, oh, yeah. once they're revealed, there's so much more richness that the conversations going on in front of Mater Plum, for example. I suppose there's a little bit of that in the first one, once you realize it's Egg, 
that's, yeah, that's but true. That's it, true. It's maybe still there's so much more. The world has been set up by the time you get to this one, and also it was a little earlier. Yeah, I, I guess I don't know. I guess it was. It's not till really at the end here that you really know that Maynard Plum is Blood, Blood Raven. It was about halfway through the Hedge Knight that you knew Egg was the prince. So. I think, and some people don't ever. Some people go read the story and aren't clear that Maynard Plum is Blood Raven. It's, it's pretty, you know, Egg. It's it's very just trotted out in front of you and made very clear. With this one, you can you can miss it, and you're not a bad person for missing it. I also suppose a high ratio of people reading the Hedge Knight might already know Egg from the beginning. That's a good point. That's a good point. Prince yeah. too. So already know. Yeah. Occasionally, but, uh, that would be true for this one as well. But a lot of the things that I think of as good writing from the others, they're all present here. Mm. Things like how careful George is about how he words things, keeping certain things ambiguous, layers of irony existing that you can't know until you know how it's going to play out. But there's more of it. And he's interweaving more different pieces together, both from this story and the world that he's created overall. I could go on and on. Yeah. Well, we're about to go on and on about <laughs> all the reasons why I love well, it. Well, one other thing I wanted to, to build on something you said that I thought was pretty poignant is talking about inside jokes and, and innuendo and world building and, and just having things established. We've talked about this, especially with comedies in the past, where the farther along a, a comedy goes, like if it's in season eight or nine or 10, which is obviously very few shows get that deep. The, the level of inside joking they can do is m- incredible because they've got so much past material to draw off of. Like, you can't mm-hmm. do inside jokes in season one, you know? <laughs> yeah. Like, what do you refer to? Like, remember last week when we, well, that was our first episode. <laughs> yeah, ha, right? Like, yeah. Well, you can't, that's, that's ridiculous. You have to build patterns and you have to have time. Like, you have to have time pass for these things to work. So, that, so that, and that's why I would say maybe this one is a little more advanced um, because you have to know the world building. You have to know to get the inside jokes. but. To, to George's credit, even if you don't get them, eh, no big deal. The story's great without them. It's not like you were required to understand these things to get it. It's just bonus material, yeah. <laughs> but woven It's like, in. here's $100. <laughs> now, here's $100 and a piece of chocolate cake. <laughs> well, that's even better. Yeah. <laughs> right on. So as far as switching over to, like you said, Maynard Plum, John the Fiddler, some of these other characters, their hidden identities. But from a mi- we go from a micro Game of Thrones water dispute situation last time, uh, the medieval Western situation. We go to this one, which is almost a full-blown Blackfire Rebellion. You have a lot more characters. You have a lot more, Im- quote-unquote, important characters, meaning political figures, not important. You know, important is in the eye of the beholder when we're talking about characters in a story. But you know what I mean. We're talking much higher-scale politics here, bigger realm-shaking events, or potentially realm-shaking events, I guess you could say, because they didn't get going far enough to actually shake the realm, <laughs> but they sure wanted to. And of course, it's fun to mention the, to call, refer to this as the Black Wedding, because it's a Black Fire Wedding, you know, and the Red Wedding is a strong inspiration for this. And the Red Wedding was inspired partially by the Scottish Black Dinner of History, which George has mentioned on a few times. So we're kind of connecting, triangulating these factors here. Unlike the last two stories, we don't have a lot of setup to do. There isn't a big change in the political situation there hasn't been as much time passed. The same kings in charge, the same hand. Uh, very few lords have, you know, there hasn't been any big events, basically. They've been wandering from the south, heading north, but they're not making a direct line to the north, right? They're, they got to make a living on the way. It's kind of implied that they've had a few stops along the way, maybe done a few odd jobs, nothing substantial, nothing that bears a lot of thinking on because... We don't get any specifics really from their recent memories. 
but enough time has passed to show that that had to have happened. So they're still heading north to make their way to fight Dagon. But here's a really, really important parallel. The fact that they're starting off in Stony Sept is huge. Stony Sept is the place where John Connington wishes he had burned. Or, well, he wishes he had burned it 70 years from now because he <laughs> John Connington hasn't been born yet. <laughs> we'll end up wishing. Yeah. And this is where, so in the span of those events, Robert Baratheon's going to hide in a brothel because uh, he knows John Connington's army is nearby. And he sires Bella while he's staying there. And Bella has that really funny scene with Gendry in A Storm of Swords where Bella's like, maybe I'll ring your bells. And he's like, no, I'm not interested. And we're all like, phew, that would have been incest. <laughs> <laughs> and they're talking about how their hair, and they make this joke about, you know, being the son of a king, a joke that is also kind of made in this story. <laughs> like, maybe we're all sons of kings or whatever, <laughs> you know? And so Bella, as a, with a very notable black hair uh, and a king's bastard is an intriguing comparison to Sir Glendon, who was also born in a brothel. And of course, the crow cages. We started with crow cages last time, and here we are again. But when we discussed the crow cages in The Sworn Sword, we of course brought up Arya and her scene of mercy and justice that we used as a comparison. And where did that happen? Stony Sept. <laughs> so it's all, it all comes together at Stony Sept. Let me ask, where is Stony Sept compared to, uh, mm. what was the location of, uh, of the Hedge Knight? From, you want to know how far it is from Ashford Meadow? Yeah, how far apart these tournaments are taking. They're not that far apart. Well, they'd be about three years apart, but in terms of distance, they'd be, yeah. Ashford Meadow is sort of in the middle of the reach, south of like south central Westeros. And uh, this is more, and this is in the Riverlands. It's more northwest of there. Yeah, it's southwest of Harrenhal. So this lake that they, you know, the, the ferry crosses the lake there. So maybe this tournament has a certain slice of people. Yeah. And that, you know, hey, everyone for the most part here is a potential rebel. And maybe those people would have been less likely to want to go to a tournament in the past, right? They might be forcing, they might be... Uh, Putting, putting themselves in position to face some shaming or some retribution or something, right? Yeah. People who are like on thin ice over the rebellion, maybe steer clear of tournaments, especially tournaments where the prince is showing up. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, you're right. There's, and there's a chance that Blood Raven knew right away who he was. Like, I think he more likely to recognize Egg. He would have known that Egg shaved his hair and all that. That's, which is something we'll talk about during here. That is sort of a theme, sort of an overall thought about this episode that I was having especially because I was thinking about it a lot in the, the past couple of books from the main series, yeah. the identities beyond even secret identities and hidden identities or unknown identities. But there's still a strong theme in this series overall. But I think in this book too, about it, what, what Egg's role is, you know, beyond even like being a secret prince or whatever, like, and even recognizing things about people's roles in the world, you know, when they have to like wait in line for the ferry. And Glendon Ball, his sort of expectation because of his father to be treated a certain way and how many other people might have that or not have that expectation. But also, like, he might even be a little hypocritical if he expects people to treat him a certain way because of his father, but is surprised at how they treat him because of his mother. Yeah. Uh, whether they should treat him these ways or not. But That's a good point. Just, I, I feel like over and over again, I kept thinking about the idea of roles and identities beyond just who's 
identities or secrets or whatever. I see. That's a good point. Yeah, definitely. And it's reflected in this in the title, right? It's the mystery night. Like, who is he? So, yeah. Or who is he or she? And who are they? <laughs> and that's such a question for so many characters here, whether it's literally like, who is that? Or it's like, what kind of person are you? What kind of man do you want to be? What kind of woman do you want to be? What kind of being are you? Like, what, what's your role in life? What kind, you know, are what you, kind of night are yeah, you? Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. What kind of night are you? What kind of night are you truly, Sir Duncan? Yeah, that's, that's really good. It's, you're right. Uh, yeah, George has this like grab bag of themes he can use that have been, a lot of them have been established as another value of, of having a story that's the third installment rather than the first or something like that is that we're just, we're returning to familiar ground without having to re-explain it or re-situate it all. Re-identify it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Something that I think George does a good job of in this series, maybe in general too, but specifically, we're we're kind of following Dunk along and he's almost meandering, right? He doesn't have particular focus or destination. Egg is kind of just trying to have fun. Dunk, maybe even though he doesn't have like a specific plan, he still has this uh, sort of like a, a code or an honor, if you will. Like he is like trying to protect the innocent, you know? Yeah. Egg is just trying to go on adventures. And a lot of these stories start off kind of tame. And then all of a sudden, like, holy crap, how do we get here? Like, yeah. suddenly Dunk's life is on the line. Uh, suddenly, the, sometimes the, the, the lives of many people are on the line. It, you know, the, whether it's a rebellion starting here or it, just a small village and, uh, and the sworn sword. But I think that George does a good job of starting off with small or no stakes, if you will. Mm. And then suddenly they get serious. Yeah, Does that make yeah. sense? I think that's a, it's, it makes it for exciting. Uh, he does a good job of kind of building the tone and pace up to these climactic moments. Well said. Yeah, good said. We start, like I said, with sort of a familiar uh, situation, the dead preacher. We get more than we got with those crow cages and the sworn sword. We actually have identification. They know who this guy is. At least they've heard him preaching. And of course, it immediately comes back to blood rip whether he did this, whether someone did this in his name. Uh, but what they know for sure is this guy was definitely preaching against Blood Raven, whereas other people in the Crow Cage, they were just left to guess why they were there. Uh, this is a lot more straightforward. But even in that situation, even here with the being straightforward, we don't know like it was in Watts Wood in The Sworn Sword. Rohan's like, I, don't, I didn't order the burning of those trees. Maybe no one did. But if someone did, they did it to please me, you know? That it could be a similar situation here, maybe not pleasing. They're more worried about being punished for not cutting down on these trees and uh, this treasonous talk. Either way, it's a, it's a narrower thing that we're wondering about. There's a, there's more precise details, and we have this quote right here. How many eyes does B- Lord Bloodraven have? The riddle ran: a thousand eyes and one. Some claim the king's hand was a student of the dark arts who could change his face, put on the likeness of a one-eyed dog, even turn into a mist. Packs of gaunt gray wolves hunted down his foes, men said, and carrying crows spied for him and whispered secrets in his ears. Most of the tales were only tales, Dunk did not doubt, but no one could doubt that Blood Raven had performers everywhere. This is very magical this, and very distinctly magical. Talk about reusing a, an existing theme. These are Odin references. You know, one-eyed, you got gray, uh, gray wolves and crows. That's all Odin stuff. Uh, which is something we get into deeper detail with in our Three-Eyed Blood Raven episode. But one open question, certainly one that hasn't been solved or answered, is at what point did Blood Raven start using Magic of the Old Gods? He's definitely using Glamours at this point. 
no doubt there, right? But this, whether or not he's already tapped into the Weirwood network, well, these rumors argue he has, turning into mist, turning into animals. That sounds like skin changing, right? So it certainly smells like he's already doing that, even if we don't have direct evidence of it, like we do have the direct evidence of his glamoring. So I thought it was interesting that gray wolves hunted on his behalf. I, I wonder if that's, does he have any connection with the North, secret connection or otherwise? Well, besides his, Is that just an allusion to the werewoods? Well, I mean, his, he's, he's from House Blackwood, which is in the South, but they follow the old gods. They're one of the few. So, okay. so there is that. So he does have that connection. There's a werewood there. You remember House Blackwood, when Jamie goes there at the end of A Dance with Dragons, they have their big dead tree and he, he negotiates with Titos. Uh, and Titos gives him his seven-foot son to go be a hostage, which is maybe a bit of a nod to this. You have... Uh, egg traveling with Jamie <laughs> and you have a seven foot tall Blackwood kid <laughs> that's kind of like Dunk's height you know right right before he encounters Brienne <laughs> you know she comes out of the woods like two paragraphs later <laughs> so that's pretty neat turning back to the more mundane the, the non-supernatural stuff which I like I said we explore in that episode to as far as we can obviously there's no dis- definitive answers on these things more about here, it's more about the, the imposing visage, the rumors, the way this impacts people's belief about this character. They're afraid of him because he's got these magical powers. Blaming him for deaths and drought, uh, we saw that last time. It's kind of silly, but, and, and I think that's definitely going too far to kill someone for that. But this guy's like out here literally saying, rise up fight for the black dragon, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he wasn't just complaining about the state of the realm and blaming Blood Raven for it. He's, yeah, he's advocating revolution. Yeah, it's a really big, yeah, he's like, there's seven sons. Like, he's saying it's religious. It's pretty bad. Like, if you're going to s- draw the line at talking, then this guy is just talking. But if you're going to say that certain talk is treasonous, this is treasonous talk. I mean, (laughs) (laughs) it's not like he's giving away state secrets. That'd be worse. You know, like if he's like (laughs) giving out the combination to the safe, you know, where all the Blood Raven secrets are, that would be, (laughs) that might even be worse. But in any case, it reiterates the emphasis on the police state situation that a lot of people feel is in play. And it's kind of easy or at least somewhat easy to see where they're coming from, right? You, you cited the line, if we start cutting off the heads of fools and liars, like, how do you feel about this sort of dichotomy about like treason versus talk and things like that? Yeah, I mean, I, I will say on one hand that it, it's understandable why you would want to curtail treason. You know what I mean? Yeah. It, it, it makes sense that rulers and nations want to maintain stability. But on the other hand, it's sort of a cornerstone of America is that you need to be able to speak out against your leaders. Yes. But it's one thing to say, you know, I don't like what Biden's doing. It's another thing to say, we should kill Biden, right? (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, somewhere near there's a line, and I can imagine in a more dictarian or monarchical society that the line might be shifted from where it is in America, where we have a particular value on freedom of expression or whatever. But, But Dunk points out the issue with, trying to draw the line, you know, if, if you want to kill everyone that lies or is stupid, well, you have to kill everyone. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and it's, it, it, I, I understand the flip side is you can't never punish anyone for uh, any lie or any act of stupidity, but, but beheading a public torture, those might be kind of extreme. Yeah. 
I can see arguments on all sides. It's interesting to think about. And I, I appreciate that Dunk is at least getting Egg, a potential, at least, prince, to think twice about how quick he is to want to execute someone for, for preaching against. You know? Yeah, and we wonder, given he was maybe in the area, personally, maybe. <laughs> but he still probably didn't give the order directly, right? And that's probably, in fact, that might be why we know he didn't give the order directly, because we just encounter him in disguise. But that still, he's not like, don't do that. <laughs> he's not out here telling people don't execute traitors. We do know he's a hardliner. Like, he says so. Yeah, uh, I mean, even if he didn't order it, he set the policy. Yeah, he did. He set the policy. Yeah. yeah. Maybe, and maybe this guy was going, exceeding the mandate of the policy, but not to a degree that is going to get him in trouble. So effectively, he hasn't, you know, exceeded the mandate, if, if we're going to be uh, technical about it. Really important detail here that Nina points out, the faith. This is a septum. It's not like executing a couple of randos. This is a worshiper, you know, a, an advocate, a representative of the He carries a certain religion. authority yeah. with this statement. Yeah, so it's, yeah. it is different than just executing some dudes. An actual septum, and that, that makes Dunk a little uncomfortable, too, the fact that it's a septum. And you had a, a note about this, too. This is a separate thing about just heads on spikes and what that makes him think about. It kind of takes him in a completely different direction, huh? Yeah, my, my original thought on this was actually way back when I was a sweet summer child and I thought that Dunk really was a true knight. <laughs> uh, that, uh, but Dunk does remember back when he was a kid in King's Landing and, and he tells Egg, you know, one time I stole head off a spike. But in his mind, he remembers, well, actually, I didn't take the head off the spike. One of my buddies did and he threw it down to me and we ran around like hooligans. But he did embellish the story, at least. And, and, and part of my thinking at the time was that, uh, that even when Dunk lies, we kind of get the truth of it in his mind. Uh, and it just made me want to believe that if he was really lying <laughs> about being a hedge knight, we would get the truth of that in his mind, you know. But, yeah, that's, that's um, true. But he does also think of that time that he, you know, he said that they were all, him and his little gang were all little monsters and he was the biggest of all. Again, in my mind, it's like, maybe that's where the monstrous lie came from. Maybe something he did there as a terrible kid in King's Landing. So th this is a bit of a tangent, but it was still when I was stretching to justify Dunk. <laughs> I haven't been a real knight. But, but it does also show, you know, he, he maybe has a taste of the dark side, you know, from both what he's seen and how he has been himself. He knows how awful a person can be because he's been that awful. So yeah. Let's return to the issue of the preachers, what he actually says, and, and frame that to how it's coalescing in a belief system around the realm. Rise up, I say, and remember our true king across the water. Seven gods there are and seven kingdoms, and the black dragon sired seven sons. Rise up, my lords and ladies, rise up, you brave knights and sturdy yeomen, and cast down Blood Raven, that foul sorcerer lest your children and your children's children be cursed forevermore. Nina draws a comparison between, say, Eustace Osgray, who says things that are, eh, you know, wouldn't say them at court, but I don't think anyone would kill you for saying Darren Falseborn. They might, though. You know, you, you definitely wouldn't want to say that around the wrong people. It's definitely, as you said, farther down. Like, this guy is... Eustace Osgrey wasn't like, let's rise up, you know? <laughs> he's not yeah. like... You definitely don't want to say it around Aaron. Yeah, and, and he's <laughs> not saying, like, the gods have decreed. You know, he's just... It's his opinion. You know, there's, there's, you can see that some of the differences here. People who are strong believers in the faith may have already been on 
Damon's side. They may have already been on the Blackfire side because it's the side of chivalry and knighthood and not the side of maesters and Dornishmen and sorcery, right? So it's already the kind of the side that people who don't necessarily know the, the whole picture would choose just on general marketing. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, that's, those are our people on that side. We like the good faithful, right? The faith is pretty clearly on the Blackfire side. Whether that's true or not, it's perceived that way by a lot of people. And that's really important because it shows just how popular the Blackfire cause is. How, I mean, this is, this is 15, 17 years later, for, I guess 16 years later, after the Blackfire Rebellion. And they're still doing like this. That's a long time, right? <laughs> for, for, this to, for people to still be preaching and calling for this. In a certain way, it is, but I think that it it makes sense for uh, I don't know political beliefs don't fade away oh, any more yeah. than religious ones, or maybe maybe more than religious ones. But anyway, they they hold fast. People still in the real world will think back on I don't know the Civil War, nine eleven, or yeah, you know sure. some other thing like that. Yeah, definitely. Like you, you still see people with like symbols of those. But you don't necessarily see them on the street corner yelling, like, rise up again. You know, that, that's, yeah, that, that's a little farther. But that, that could be just this guy's, you know, he's just a, a bit of a weirdo. <laughs> Not necessarily <laughs> yeah. typical. But it still is somewhat that immediately we have people who are actually trying to restore that dynasty. So it is pretty darn serious in that sense. And Blood Raven is a kinslayer. That is a fact at least an established fact as far as the realm. No one's ever going to disprove that, right? <laughs> Even if it wasn't technically his arrows that killed those people, uh, killed those, uh, his nephews and his half-brother. Everyone believes it's the case. No one's ever going to, there's nothing could ever prove it otherwise. So constantly reminding people of that crime of his is a way to continuously keep people, maybe not on the Blackfire side, but show how the other side is problematic at the very least, you know? If they're not going to join us, at least they won't join him. That kind of thing. You know, there is a sort of irony or maybe hypocrisy. For the most part, the people that want to support the Black Fires, it's because he was the better man, right? He's the strong warrior. And I feel like that's sort of sort of a, not necessarily American politics conservative, although maybe there's some parallels, but a conservative way of thinking, like the the old school, the way things should be in my day, you know. Well, it's we very conservative these. for Westeros. Like, that does reflect right. what a conservative Westeros belief, Westerosi belief but would be, yes. It also, in in a conservative sense, you feel like that means, like, don't buck the system, follow the rules. Like, you might not like them, but these are the rules. So I feel like there's this hypocrisy to, like, we'll, we'll follow the rules until we don't like the rules. Right. You know what I mean? That's yeah. basically what's going on. We want a good, strong king like this one. And so everyone must follow the king. Then the king comes along, it's not good and strong. Like, well, we can rebel against this king because he's not strong. So <laughs> he's what, destroying what those traditions. Actually... Yeah, they they like the traditions more than the laws. Like it just become it like when it comes to a head, you see which things really matter more to them. Kind of like we see the proximity of these the Costain and and Smallwood lords argue over who gets to cross first. Normally, this wouldn't come up. Like who's more important doesn't come up. They just, they sit at the same table. They, but only when these things get really, the microscope gets puts on them, do they, do they have reason to argue over it? And I think that's a, a microcosm of that. So that was, that's a very good point, Sean. Another interesting theme that starts off right away is the focus of the weather. All three stories have somewhat notable weather and notable death, right? We got Sir Arlen, we got sort of mystery bandits or whatever they were. And now we have the Sept and we have heavy rain, 
versus no rain, drought versus sort of light summer rain here. It's sort of a mix of the prior two. It's no longer a drought situation. Flooding probably isn't a risk anymore because it's been going on for a few months, the, the rains. The realm hasn't fully recovered yet either. It's not, it's not, that, not in that good a shape. And all these things are so big, weather, civil war, death. These are not the province, the provender, the things that are under control of normal humans. Even the most powerful humans can't control these things for the most part. So hedge knights certainly can't. Uh, but some people think they're above those things, right? There's certain people that believe they're, they have grand destinies. They believe they were born to do great things. Some of them have that because they have big egos. Some of them have magical dreams. <laughs> Damon <laughs> is probably both. Someone who has a yeah. big ego and he definitely has magical dreams. So <laughs> here we go. Let's talk about the lords on the road here. Nina writes, Dunk's fear of the lords on the road that the roads were not so safe as when good King Daron sat the Iron Throne reminds us of Belittle up in A Storm of Swords who meets Bran and company and says, when there was a Stark in Winterfell, a maiden girl could walk the King's Road in her name day gown and still go unmolested. Uh, the unspoken coda to that sentence is, but not when the Boltons have <laughs> rule mm -hmm. in the North. So, it's like a combination of nostalgia, but also a statement on current affairs and how the current regime is maybe not doing the best job they could, but also saying that it's, there are things out of their control. It's mostly just like a, well, things were better, you know, they sure were. <laughs> so we have a couple of characters that get introduced here. Alan Cockshaw, we'll start with him. He's, a couple of y'all noticed the name is kind of like Cockshaw. You know, and this character definitely embodies that. Especially when Harry Lloyd pronounces it. <laughs> yeah. He, his, with his accent, which, by the way, is East You Now Know. Yes. Right? Yes. A lot of y'all recommended that I check out the audio version of this. And I'm, I do listen to a fair number of audiobooks, so it was kind of an easy, uh, natural step for me. But I hadn't actually listened to these before. And I only read them you know, countless times. But I did pick it up this time. I listened to the whole Mystery Night in between last week and here. And yeah, man, Harry Lloyd is great, especially with characters like Alan Cox. Really, his voice, especially when he's whiny or complaining, it, the Viserys really comes out. And that's just fun mm -hmm. <laughs> to be remembered of that because his Viserys is so good. It's one of the most like the hardest to nitpick, you know, <laughs> partly because it was a shorter role. That's the, the nature of quantity, but it was such high quality. And that's great. And I love how he's like, you have to, you have to apologize. And he's like, oh, do I, uh, do you, do I, do you accept my apologies? Not looking at him and already riding away, you know. Rides off. <laughs> he, he asks for the apology, but does not care about the answer. Yeah. <laughs> he's like following these instructions to the letter. You know, it's like, well, you said I had to say that. You didn't say I had to <laughs> listen to I his answer. I mean it or care about yeah, it. Exactly. Yeah. There's just words. Nina also points out, maybe the inspiration for the sigil of Free Feathers is, is from the Prince of Wales, traditionally. It has three feathers as their sigil. So that uh, could, be a com could be a connection there. But more importantly, Gorman Peak, he's the lord with three castles, loomed large in the Sworn Sword. Recall that he's the one who killed Roger of Pennytree, Arlen's nephew and squire before Dunk. And of course, Lord Hayford, who was leading that section of the army during the Redgrass Field, the center. The two centers came together and the two leaders of the center, as we detailed last week with Jim McGeehan, um, Gorman Peak won that exchange, but he has three castles on his sigil, but does not have three castles for real. And that is the rub. 
as an aside, one of the castles he lost used to belong to House Manderley many centuries ago before the Manderleys were forced to flee north. The Peaks got their old castle and then proceeded to lose it here several centuries later. Gorman Peak, like uh, Eustace Osgray, is presiding over a house in decline, even though they still have a lot of power. It's that same sort of, we used to be so much better, I want to get back to that, and I'll do anything to do that. So it's a similar motivation. Uh, but also, the per- their personalities do align in terms of preferring a, a ruler like Damon Blackfire. It's cynicism and opportunism meet kindred spirits, I will say. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. Now, we also have the, the Frey sigil that Dunk brings up, which is kind of funny. We have two castles on their sigil and three on <laughs> Gorman's. So a lot of castles on sigils there. Egg mocks Dunk for not knowing the difference between the two. We have, uh, he says, is that some kin to House Frey because of that? And, uh, well, that's where they're going to see Frey marry Butterwell. So, yeah, he's, he was, he was on his way there. And not even Egg knows this sigil that's worn by John the Fiddler because it's just some new sigil, right? It's not, <laughs> it's like why he claims to be a hedge knight. made up, yeah. probably, yeah, right? Just, yeah, just like Dunk made his up, he made his up. He's like, yeah, I'm the... I'm the fiddler. Yeah, that's it. Hmm. Yeah, that's the ticket. Uh, but it is unusual. And one of the first clues that someone might not know Dunk's sigil, right? Even Egg, who's made a point of studying sigils, because Dunk's a new knight, a young knight. He hasn't really, maybe he's barely made a name for himself at Fermetto. But, but this guy, he's got like an entourage yeah. and like wealth bubbling out of him. And you would think Egg might know, you know? Yeah, yeah. So he's so it's immediately something is up, right? And and that is the first clue of many, is a huge number of clues that this guy is, they're not all clues that he's Damon the second Blackfire, but they are clues that he's not what he says he is, right? That yeah. that's maybe the more overwhelming sentiment that we get from these clues. He does technically have no castle, which is an interesting mini rabbit hole. Damon Blackfire had a castle, a small one along the Blackwater, apparently. It's gone, probably. It's never mentioned again. And you got to figure that given Bloodraven took down White Walls and tore down the monument at the Redgrass Field, this is the same sort of thing where he just wanted to remove all trace of it. This poverty stigma looms large here in light of Damon's, or John the Fiddler's, inexplicable lack of not just poverty, but of of any sign of not being wealthy. You know, like the, imagine the guy off the road hiding behind the hedges is decked out in gold and <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Dunk's like dirty and shirtless. Yeah, you yeah, know? He's, like, he's shirtless. So yeah, and here's this guy. He has like a necklace that's worth more than everything Dunk owns. You know, ever owned, and they're both yeah. hedge knights. So yeah, he's like some, well, too much disparity. And he's like, yeah, we're brothers of the hedges. Like. What? <laughs> we are? <laughs> You're my brother. Well, buy me dinner then, brother. Yeah. <laughs> but he does invite him. And Dunk is like, no, because I'm so poor, I would constantly feel, well, that would be brought up constantly. It would be a constant source of discomfort and awkwardness. Like, man, these guys are so much richer than me. They have so much more privilege and so much more ability to do what they want and makes them more at ease and all this other stuff. It's even something that was mentioned in the first book. Like Dunk chose to stay away from the camp with all the other knights. This is that the way he was treated by Peak and uh, Cockshaw 
That's exactly why. Yeah. Right. Yes. That's what he was worried about in the hedge net. Totally right. Yeah. It comes back. It's a great thing. It's a good example of something that was established before, and the theme is carrying forward here. And we can pretty easily refer to it if we take note. And it also brilliantly fits the identity theme. Uh, Dunk is again wielding a, a shield that does not represent. It does not represent me. The shield. This arms of ill repute. It's not quite the same as House Trant. It's similar. Hanged man swinging grim and gray beneath the gallows tree. So he's the gallows knight, which is actually kind of a cool name for a mystery knight. Maybe we're supposed to think of House Trant, who are pretty awful, um, but it's also similar to, because their, their sigil's a black hanged man on a blue field. Pretty similar. Uh, Brienne, of course, carries the Lost in Shield, which we've talked about a couple times and has that repainted. So this, again, is a kind of a nod to that. This part of it is where we talk about the difference in class, even within these identities. So that's something we've, we've come up with a lot. And it really continues here in the next section with the fairy, as we've already alluded to a couple times, class distinctions really come up when it's a turn, when, you only, when only a few people get to cross at a time and everyone has to kind of get in order of prominence. You really have to sort out who's most prominent when there's limited space. It's like, who gets to go on the rescue ship? Like if, you're, if the boat is sinking, like it's that it's kind of an argument like that, but not nearly as life or death, right? Even in that scenario, a, there's going to be a little bit more of first come, first serve. That's right. True. When there's yeah. a, a mad, desperate scramble for your life. But when there's time to argue about who your father is, <laughs> <laughs> you're going to argue about who your father is. <laughs> yeah. And it is it's exactly what it is. Lord and Lady Smallwood arrive, and then Lord Costain and his people show up. And one of them argues, well, my house is more established and the other's like well i'm older so that puts me first and it's just very silly but you co- totally get it you're like yeah of course they would argue about that <laughs> that's well established stains a hundred percent or more prestigious one of the cost stains married into the targaryen <laughs> like they should bring that up just saying good point but and by, of course it also bears mention that it was one of the smallwoods not lord or lady it was one of their knights probably who killed Adam Osgray, you know, the, the squire, Osgray squire there. So another connection, but that's also, that's partly because their lands are near here. Um, so that it makes sense that they'd be around this area. And of course we see them, the Lady Smallwood that gives Arya the acorn dress and talks about her, her son who died and all that. So that's a, the, the Smallwoods are not super prominent, but they have a, a good bit of quantity and popping up in a, in a few different places. Very important as well. Another hallmark, Connecting point to A Feast for Crows, Septon Maribald. This quote is, works as a setup for what's happening here, but this line actually comes when he's describing that story about the inn of the clanking dragon. Here's the line. There was a ferry landing here as well, so travelers could cross to Lord Haraway's town and White Walls. So Maribald is referring to White Walls, even though White Walls is torn down in A Feast for Crows. That's because it wasn't torn down so, so long ago that people haven't forgotten. It was torn down in the year 212 and Maribald there in the year 300. So there's still people that would remember it. And he even refers to the inn before that. He refers to what its name was in Jaehaerys' time. But what's really cool about all that is that Inn of the Clanking Dragon, that story is a story about the Blackfires. It's the story of Lord Derry was annoyed by the black dragon sigil hanging there because it's a black dragon. So he took it and he threw it in the river and it washed ashore with covered in red rust, which is totally, <laughs> that's like, ooh, nice symbolism there, George. And uh, that, of course, story is told 
in A Feast for Crows as well. So it touches on this and it's really cool. Good job, George, man. You're the boss. Uh, <laughs> so we have a number of really amazing coming togethers at both Stony Sept and here at this inn and all around the God's Eye where a lot of these events took place. White Walls used to rule Lord Haraway's town, which we also see Lord Haraway's town with, when Arya and Sandor crossed via ferry. And they, they talk about how most of Lord Haraway's town is flooded because it's been raining so, so much in that span. So yet another connection to a storm of swords. Also, we notice that things cost more. It's a kind of a side note. It's very under the radar. Dunk talked about how things have gone up in cost over the past six or seven years. It's pretty easy to chalk that comment off as just, oh, yeah, you know, inflation. Of course, things cost more. That's just pretty standard, right? But it's not quite that simple. Here, it's plague, drought, war. I mean, all these other things. That's, that drives prices up, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, that's another thing in general, by the way, that inflation hits poor people more yeah. harder than rich people, right? Yeah. Like if you have a billion dollars, you don't care if eggs cost $1 or $10. But if you only have $10, you care a lot if eggs cost $1 or $10. Yeah, that's one egg versus 10. You're right. It's a huge difference. Exactly. The staples are, when the staples go up in price, that's when people suffer. Yeah. The most important foodstuffs, the most basics. Yeah. You're totally right. Speaking of foodstuffs, let's talk about eggs. Of course, dragon eggs are not usually used as a foodstuff. And that is the type of egg we're referring to. Not usually. <laughs> Not usually. Yeah, don't let the uh, the don't let the Jawa get a handle on a dragon egg. You'll see what they'll do with that. <laughs> okay, so let's have a quote here about the eggs. The last dragon left a clutch of five, and they have more on Dragonstone, old ones from before the dance. My brothers all have them too. Arian's looks as though it's made of gold and silver, with veins of fire running through it. Mine is white and green, all swirly. So in addition to the Summer Hall foreshadowing and Danny foreshadowing, like one overarching theory that it's hard to argue with is that all these dreams and prophecies of the dragons coming back, they were all seeing Daenerys. They didn't know they were seeing Daenerys, but that's who they were, they were dreaming of. That's because that's who actually did it, right? Like evidence seems to suggest she was the one all along. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe it wasn't preordained. You could make that argument. And that's, that's, a, that's a strong point, I suppose. But hey, you know, maybe it was. Uh, either way. It sets all those things up pretty well. It shows his interest at a young age um, in bringing the dragons back. But we've covered all those things in, in other places. One thing a lot of y'all asked about, a lot of historians and people out there in the fandom are curious about, are any of these eggs matches for any of the other eggs that are out there? Do we have connections between these descriptions and eggs we've seen elsewhere? For the most part, no. Almost exclusively, no. There, there's a lot of eggs mentioned throughout the series in various points, and they pretty much don't connect to each other. <laughs> I definitely, when I started reading these scripts, I was like, wait a minute, what did Danny's eggs look like? Yeah. And I think it might have been one of the first times I was using a search of ice and fire to like hunt down. Like, <laughs> just green swirly. Where did that come up? Uh, no, yeah. but like, <laughs> yeah, cream and gold. It's like, oh, green and bronze. Yeah, it's not green and white. Yeah, they just don't match. And we don't know what color eggs the Sun Chaser was purchased with. So that would maybe give us an additional clue. Because these eggs are so distinct. If they do match, it's hard for it to be coincidence. Because you got like three colors, not to mention patterns. So it's really hard. They're like that. It's hard for this to be coincidence. Uh, they're very distinct. It's like, yeah. Um, but of course, this <laughs> the prize 
for the tournament is an egg. And that's part of why this is a discussion topic for a number of reasons. One, off the top, it's a red egg with black swirls. That is the black fire colors. The red with a black dragon. I mean, that is boom, right? It's really on the nose. But without noticing that, it's a pretty strange tournament setup, isn't it, Sean? We've discussed before that you're a man who has run a lot of tournaments. And something jumps out at you about this, doesn't it? Yeah, that the disparity in the first and second prize <laughs> is preposterous. <laughs> like, a lot of times, uh, it's sort of like a decision on it, the whoever's running a tournament, whether or not they want for the top the finalists to split, the top two or the top four even sometimes will like split. And generally speaking, the, the greater the disparity, the more likely to have a split, right? Like if first place is $10 and second place is nine and third place is eight, we're like, well, what are, what are split and fit? Like, we'll just play, you know, we'll play for the honor of it. But if first place is $10 million and second place is $100, who is going to risk coming and said, <laughs> who's going to, how much pride or honor or bragging rights is worth $9,999,000? You think someone, yeah, you think people are going to cheat without that? Like people were cheating to win without these big prizes. Imagine the yeah. cheating that would happen when this is the difference between prizes. <laughs> yeah, like I, I played a ton of poker in my life. I was a professional poker player for 10 years. And you see a lot of tournament prizes in poker. Tournaments are a big part of poker. It's very standard for, First place to be about twice as much as second place or really close to that general frame range. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> this is so, 30 gold dragons for second place on egg for first place as well. <laughs> now, I, but I don't think this is George and his, you know, sometimes we, you know, lightly tease George's math skills. I don't think that's the case here. I think this is, this, these guys are idiots. <laughs> because <they're, Yeah. laughs> first of all, the value of a dragon egg is expressed in a number of different ways in the series. And that's also not George's math wonkiness. That's just, there is no established value for dragon egg. So a bunch of different people are going to weigh in on what it might be worth. And, you know, they're going to have wildly disparate views on that because there's no market for, you know, it's like, it's like, well, the last time one was sold, it went for this much. So we guess that's, that establishes a market value. And then we have the last 10 times one sold and we've got this data. No, of course not. There's nothing like that. It's all just, like any extreme luxury good, it's what the super rich person's willing to pay for it. And that's what it's worth. <laughs> yeah, it's borderline priceless. Yes. It's only like, even when people call something priceless, there is some price. It's extremely high, higher than anyone would or should or could pay. And that's basically what a, a dragon egg is. Right? Yeah. This might be one of the tip-offs, if not the tip-off for the fact that something was up here. Having this as a prize yeah. is like, what? That's pretty wild. But my thought is that they're not necessarily idiots for having such a disparity between the first and second place prize. It's that they know who's going to win this prize. Yeah. It's set up, it, it right? It looks they, like a setup, yeah. But they're idiots for not thinking that someone else in the realm is going to take note of this. Yes. So Blood Raven, for example. <laughs> yes, exactly. And, and you know, if it weren't for all the other things that get bungled in this, that wouldn't necessarily be a great theory or it wouldn't be as good. It would be hard, a tougher sell. But there's a number of things that are just done terribly here <laughs> so <laughs> and that's on purpose like obviously george isn't like they thought you know they th this was a good plan no of course they it, it's meant it's cast as a bunch of bungling <laughs> so uh and as you see how butterwell like you, you get butterwell on screen and the things he says it's like yeah this guy isn't like how does this guy get he was master of coin i mean whew, yeah wow uh <laughs> so 
just lots of incompetence. And the loyalty of House Butterwell was already suspect too, right? There's not just that. There's the fact that they played both sides in the rebellion. There was one, you know, they, they sent sons on both sides. Of course, that didn't work because they both died. And then his third son, he had one left and that one died in the spring sickness. So that's just bad luck. It explains why he's, you know, trying to find new alliances and have children again. Now, House Butterwell, let's do two minutes on them. They were rich for a really long time, powerful for a long time, and they've had friends at court for a long time. That was jump-started by loyalty to Magor. When Magor the Cruel usurped the throne, the Butterwells were pretty quick to get in his corner and stayed in his corner and were rewarded with Haraway's town when Harrenhal was stripped from its previous owners. Because Haraway's town was part of Harrenhal's lands, but they're right next to the Butterwell land, so Butterwell got instead. Alton Butterwell was master coin. This is many generations ago during Magor's time, so not even the first time we had a Butterwell master coin. This current guy is Ambrose. He was master coin for Aegon IV. So, you know, Aegon the Unworthy, the guy who made all the great bastards. And he stayed around at court. He was hand for Daron II, but was fired at the beginning of the Blackfire Rebellion because he was not good at it. You can see why. <laughs> His grandfather was also Aegon IV's hand for a while, where probably not at the same time he himself was master of coin for Aegon. Aegon's reign was decently long. And that's, of course, when he got the egg. His grandfather got the egg from Aegon, given this anecdote about his daughters. That anecdote's probably exaggerated, but it's, it, it probably isn't too exaggerated. One reason I suspect it's exaggerated is if there were three Targaryen bastards born there, then what happened to them? We don't know about any, like none of them. There's not a single peep about any of those three. So I suspect there weren't three. There may have only been one, and maybe that one just died young or something like that. Uh, anyway, those are Ambrose's aunts, those three girls that may or may not have had Aegon's children. There you go. There's a little bit about House Butterwell that goes to show why they are like so many of these other houses. They have so much wealth and power and they can see that going away and they want to get it back. That's like a really common thread with these Blackfire supporters is they lost power. It's kind of like chasing losses. They lost power prior to the rebellion. They joined the rebellion to help get their power back and then ended up losing even more power. And, but they're still on that game. So trying to get it back. <laughs> Regain those old levels of prestige. Of course, it isn't going to go very well. Another clue with the, when the lords on the road were coming down and Dunk was thinking about uh, who it might be. They, they decided to hide. It might be uh, brigands, yeah. you know. Dunk thinks, only lords make so much noise. Just think of just oh, another yeah. clue that, that yeah. John DeFilter is not just a hedge knight. That's a great point, and, uh, yeah. <laughs> another funny moment uh, or interesting little moment was when, when Egg kind of spoke up and they said that uh, Cockshaw, I, I don't remember the exact quote, but he said something like, he paid no more attention to him than he would the croaking of a frog. A frog prince. Ah, very good. Yeah, uh, that's really good. Oh, man. And then you pointed out a line that you really liked that had a lot of alliteration in it that Dunk said. And he has another one here. It seems like Dunk likes alliteration. He said, there's no need to speak to me as if I'm deaf or dead or down and dormant. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Duncan. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> nice. That's really good. Good catch, Sean. Yeah, let's talk about our shirts briefly. I, I want to shout out our friend Pat Doherty, who made this shirt. It says, 
Blood Raven shot first. You got it at Ice and FireCon. <laughs> That's right. And we did a panel with Pat about Blackfire stuff. So, And then if you look over at Sean's shirt. The gang goes to Ice and FireCon, a mashup of the It's Always Sunny <laughs> title <laughs> font. Perfectly matched. <laughs> Go to Ice and FireCon and get a Blood Raven shirt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Apparently, yeah. So we are all decked out in Ice and FireCon shirts today. That's nice. Can I go to Ice and FireCon and get a Blood Raven? <laughs> you can try. I'd like to I see. I mean, you really could. You can just find one of the many cosplayers and bring him home. Mm-hmm. You have your three cats and you'll have a, a pet <laughs> person. A pet Blood Raven. Oh, no, it could just be a raven. A Blood blood Raven. <laughs> blood Raving. You used to like... Might not last to... long around the cats. Hey, when you were younger, you used to go to raves, right, Sean? Oh, I didn't even think of that. Oh, man. <laughs> Someone needs to have a Game of Thrones rave, Blood Raven. <laughs> well, Christian they Nairn. They had a, a rave of thrones. Was uh, Christian Nairn? Uh, Hodor. That. Yeah. yeah, that's his DJ name, Rave of Thrones. <laughs> <laughs> Patron and longtime listener Guinevere Greenstones also uh, has regularly asked a lot of great questions. Says just followed at Dancing Sean on Twitter, and I'll say the rest of you should as well. Yes. Yes. Sean specifically requested that I ask people in the chat, are you in the Facebook group? Are you on Twitter? So many of you constantly make good points, but you use screen names. So how is Sean supposed to know who Guilty Undertaker is necessarily? Yeah, exactly. So Sean wants to connect with you all, especially you all who make regular questions, uh, whose names that we say frequently. He wants to be able to connect with you all more uh, distinctly. It's hard to find people based on their YouTube handles. So if you want to interact with Sean or with me and Ashay, the rest of us, make yourself known. Yeah, I, I mentioned in a prior episode that I make a point. I do watch these and read all the comments, uh, bo- both the comments and the chat. Yes, you know? And there are several people who are pretty active. And sometimes I wonder if they're maybe the, maybe the people I already know, already met or, you know, I'll get to meet them one day if cons start to happen or if they're on Twitter or whatever. Yeah, so. right on. Announce yourselves. <laughs> <laughs> a big question that a lot of us have is, what is up with the name John the Fiddler, right? It's J-O-H-N. Maybe that's call out to John the Oak, who is the so-called first knight. He who brought chivalry to Westeros. He was a legendary son of Garth Greenhand. Nina makes that suggestion. And, well, he is a knight. He's trying to be chivalric. He's trying to be dashing, you know, win tournaments, which is, this is all knighthood stuff, right? He is trying to be the best of that ilk. But the Fiddler, I mean, what is that all about? Like, it's, 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 it could be a hidden reference to something. One thing I thought of is that later in the story, Dunk is on the roof and he's hanging out by himself. He's a bit drunk. He's letting it calm down a bit. And John the Fiddler finds him up there and they have their moment. And so he's the Fiddler on the roof. But I kind of doubt George did, named him John the Fiddler I love that, by the just way. for that <laughs> joke <laughs> <laughs> that almost no one got, right? Because it's a very sneaky joke. <laughs> and I didn't catch it till this time, this Valar Reedus. I hadn't caught it on prior reads. So 12 years, I guess it took me to catch yeah, this I joke. Yeah, I tried to think about it. I was like, I can't think of really anything from Fiddler on the Roof that relates to John the Fiddler. I, I did find some things in Fiddler on the Roof that relate to this story. Like the protagonist is the father of a bunch of daughters and he's a milkman. So he's a, so he's a, oh. that's how, so like Butterwell is a milk, like their cow, yeah. their wealth is from cows. Now this guy's poor, 
the, but still. <laughs> I seem to remember sort of the theme of that movie is tradition versus change. Yes, it you is. Know, changing times and children growing up and stuff like that. You're right, because it's a, it's a, it's a traditional, it's a Russian Jewish family and you're supposed to, in that culture, you're supposed to marry other Russian Jews or at least other Jewish folk. And some of them are like, no, we're, we're going to go live in the city. And, you know, the world's changing. You know, it's like around the time of the Russian Revolution, you know, early 1900s. So, which I wonder when it was change. written, but part of communism, like part of the, maybe not the philosophy of communism, but the institution of communism as a government in Asia was the elimination of religion. Yeah. You know, you're right. You're right. So there was a lot of pushback against that. So it's a really, so yeah. So, Maybe we're only scratching the surface of something George was was referencing here, but I noticed also Nina I think made a note about the the story of the the fable of the grasshopper and the ant I think yeah. where the the ants are all prepping for winter and the grasshopper's just playing his fiddle mm. and then suddenly winter's here and he doesn't have any food and then maybe John the fiddler he has this charisma right but he's not actually ready for this, right? When yeah. the army show up. He has dreams, you know, he, yeah. Yeah, he just has these sort of expectations that this is all going to work out. And then winter so. comes in the form of, yeah, these armies and Blood Raven and, and you know, the, yeah. the, the real world. <laughs> yeah. But again, it is a little bit of maybe a stretch for, but I don't know, Martin yeah. can stretch in his own mind and we don't necessarily have to get it. So we welcome comments and other suggestions on what the references going on here with John the Fiddler. There, there's, there's room for more interpretation. I, I don't think that, I think what we've said here is solid, but it's not something you just go bullseye. That nailed it, you know. <laughs> you, oh, Sometimes we have you know that feeling. What I think of actually, what's that? When you're fiddling with something, you're just kind of spending time in an aimless or fruitless activity. Oh, like a shaggy dog story. Yeah, yeah. that kind of thing. You're just fiddling around, but it's not going to amount to anything. Okay. Yeah. You know, I think as we had also talked about the idea that. He he seems to just be sort of doing this as a challenge or maybe he thinks he's supposed to or it's fun or an adventure or what, as opposed to real concern for the realm. Yes. Right. Okay. Yeah. Like even Stannis is like, well, you know, how does he, how does he say it? I, 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 Trying to a, win the throne. I to can't win the, yeah. win the throne to save the, the realm country. I've got to save the realm to win the throne, yeah. you know. Yeah, or, yeah. So That's a very good call out there. I like that. Julie A, regular commenter, uh, references the line about the shadow strangling Valar and Kiera's sons in the womb, which reminds us of Renly, right? The shadow killing Renly. Now, this is in reverse, sort of, because Melisandre, the shadow, came out of her womb and did the murdering. Mm -hmm. And this is, this, the, this sentence is that it, the, the shadow is going into the womb to do murdering. Now, Melisandre is using the power of R'hllor, for lack of a better term, to like, if this was a role-playing game, we'd be curtailing these into different magic systems, you know, categorizing them. There's Bloodraven has sorcery glamour of where does that originate? Is, he, is that the same power of R'hllor or is that, are they tapping in the same energies? I don't know. I don't know why, but I just suddenly had this image of Melisandre over John with a holy water and a cross. <laughs> the power of R'hllor compels you. The power of, <laughs> she's trying to resurrect them. The power of R'hllor compels you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's pretty good. So yeah, I think we're meant to maybe think of that. I don't know that there's supposed to be a connection to it, but it's it's interesting to... There's all these ideas that we could be faced with later as to what sort of magical reveals there might be, certain abilities that these magic users may have that we may not be entirely clear on. Another side moment here is Dung thinking about 
melees versus jousts. He's like, yeah, you know, jousts, this and that. You know, maybe it's maybe I should get involved in this one. I wish there was a melee. You know, I'd be better at that. And they don't do tournaments in the North very often, but they do have melees occasionally, and that's where they're going. So I wonder if that's the setup. I wonder if George was planning mm-hmm. on having a melee for Dunk to participate in in the North. There was one in 170, so 42 years prior to this story. 18 people died in that melee, so they're much nastier than jousts. You can see why maybe you don't want to have them at a wedding. <laughs> maybe a Dothraki wedding. Uh, yes, you definitely want one at a Dothraki wedding, but not a, not a regular. You know, <laughs> it'll be interesting, by the way. I, I, I wonder, I'm going to say maybe even I bet, that if George does have a melee for Dunk, it still might not go as easy as Dunk thinks. I bet a different True. ilk of knights show up. I bet the snail. Yeah. I bet he doesn't go to a melee. No, right? probably not. You can't, you can't, it's <laughs> hard to fix that, right? <laughs> Loris wouldn't go to a melee, but the mountain would go to a melee. It's like when Robert wanted to participate in the melee, Varus was like, well, that's a perfect opportunity to murder him. You know, like it's so <laughs> yeah. easy to like, <laughs> that's the kind of thing that happens in a melee. Yeah. Quick shout out to our friends over at Shire Post Mint. They are, as usual, making fantastic coins and memorabilia for a variety of fandoms, not just the Song of Ice and Fire, but I highly recommend their Song of Ice and Fire products. You can go to historyofwesteros.com. You can find links to Shirepost as well as all the other ways we have available to support History of Westeros in our quest to bring you as much Westeros as we can, as often as we can, of the highest quality that we can to manage or muster. Muster is a better word for Westeros, I'd say. So yes, historyofwesteros.com. Pick your favorite way to support us and get to it. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Let's talk about the stumps. The stumps. Normally, people wouldn't have so much to say about stumps. Even though we've had pretty important stumps in the past, like, say, Jamie's famous stump dream, which was a werewood stump, as are these. Werewood stumps. Well, there's some things you can say about that. But there's a few things that happened before the actual stumps that you wanted to uh, draw our attention to, or at least one or two things here. For example, your Dunk's positive attitude. Again, I call that emotional intelligence, and it's worth citing. Yeah, he. a, a lot of times they're eating salt, salt beef when they want to have suckling pig mm-hmm. or you know, sleeping under the stars when they could have a, a tent or whatever in it. It reminds me sometimes, especially Dunk being a mentor to Egg, that he doesn't just whine and complain about it. Imagine, I brought this up one time before, imagine if Bennis had ended up being the the hedge knight oh, that Egg ran into <laughs> and got taken under his wing, right? I, maybe Egg would have been smart enough not to stick with that guy, but you could just see the difference that a mentor and the attitude of a mentor can have, never mind how good they are at jousting or how much money they have, but just Dunk's positive attitude. Yeah. When I was in the army, I was in the 82nd and you have to jump every so often to maintain uh, qualification, et cetera. And when I first got in, my platoon sergeant was, it was like this punishment. It was like, all right, someone's got to jump this week. Who's it going to be? Might as well volunteer. I'm going to pick you. But then eventually we got a new platoon sergeant. He's like, hey, someone gets to jump this week. Who? I'm going to come. I can take two more with me. It was like this adventure, this reward, this exciting thing you got to do rather than this uh, penalty. It's something we have to do, you know? Uh, and, and I think that Dunk does a good job of maintaining a positive attitude about things that might suck otherwise. And it keeps egg in the right mentality, you know? Yeah. 
That's a good point. Yeah. And I think, um, and we see that often with some of these hedge knights is, and we, that's important for George to draw that distinction because it is their personality, their attitude that does define the difference between sellsword slash brigand slash hedge knight. Too often they're judged by what they look like, but really that's the thing that matters. It's their personality, their inner yeah. character. Clearly that is the most important thing. Kyle the cat, good example, someone that also has a really positive attitude. He is, I love his line. Be seated, sir. We have a fine choice of stumps for your comfort. <laughs> like, yeah. And he doesn't, he's not saying that sarcastically. He's just like, hey, man, life is good. Hang out with us. You know, he's just positive, right? Like, you know, uh, Jim, the last episode yeah. that he was on instead of me, he said the same thing. In the military, there's this term, embrace the suck. You know? <laughs> <laughs> right on. So, yeah, like I said, Jamie had a famous time resting his head in a stump like this. It wouldn't have been that far from here either. In fact, these stumps might be recent. Uh, they might not be that old. They may even be part of Butterwell's castle, which apparently has some weirwood beams in it. But so does Harrenhal. And Harrenhal wasn't built that long ago either. Uh, although Butterwell's castle was built a lot more recently. Still, these are recent cuttings down of weirwoods, and there's a lot of stumps close together. So yeah, that could be the connection. We gather with these three characters, and it's Kyle the Cat, Maynard Plum, and Glendon uh, Ball, as they said. <laughs> and we'll start with Kyle. More George wordplay. Flamboyant ginger whiskers framed his face is the line, which, you know, Kyle the Cat with whiskers, of course. Kyle the Cat reminds me of Duck from Dance with Dragons. Sir Duck, Sir Raleigh Duckfield. Um, and it's expressed well in this quote that is also from A Dance of Dragons. He had sniffed out the truth beneath the dyed blue hair of Griff and young Griff easily enough, and Yandri and Yasilla seemed to be no more than they claimed to be, while Seduk was somewhat less. <laughs> yeah, so Kyle the Cat is <laughs> perhaps somewhat less as well, although Kyle isn't claiming a whole lot. So, <laughs> but, that, but the connection actually runs deeper because Duck beat up the young Caswell heir who stole his first sword Kyle the cat made Caswell his first sword of pine. <laughs> so it really is a nice little dot connecting. Tie in. Yeah, it's not the same Caswells, of course, because these are very far apart. Anyway. But there's this continuity that George maintains. Yeah. He looks for opportunities for every character to be tied in to the, the world that he's created. It's amazing. It's so good. Yeah, it really is awesome. Possible that Kyle the cat is working for Blood Raven. I don't think he is, but let's just entertain the notion. Okay, here's the, the clues are, first of all, he's an animal, right? In his sigil. And animals, skin changing, right? There's a little, maybe a little something there. Misty Moor. He's from Misty Moor. And we just got through talking about how the mist is an association with Bloodraven. And that's going to continue yeah. for a long... Like, there's a lot of strong association with mist from there. So, ah. On the other hand, he invites Dunk the White Walls, which is like, well, Bloodraven wanted them to not go. But that's probably because he recognized them. Maybe Kyle the Cat didn't recognize them. He didn't know who they were. Oh, that didn't occur to me. Yeah. But worse, this might be worse, but it might actually be a clue. He goes in real heavy on Blood Raven. He's like, that guy's, oh, all the woes are on him. He's terrible on fighting the Greyjoys. You know, he's just not doing anything right. Would he really say that if Blood Raven was right there? Well, actually, yeah, he might. He might be trying to get other people trying to get a reaction, trying to provoke a reaction, right? See what people will say. Like, will they call that treason? Or will they be like, yeah, that Blood Raven, he sucks. You know, will he say, that could actually absolutely be a setup. And if it was, well, 
Dunkin' Egg pass because they're like, well, that you know, you shouldn't be saying things like that. That's pretty. <laughs> you yeah, know? I feel like a lot of uh, Plum's dialogue is meant to kind of test Dunk and other characters yes. too to see what what what, what is, is Dunk about to go to this traders tournament? Yeah, what's he doing here with Egg? He's really I, I, I need to. Yeah, <laughs> and so I think that he and and maybe Kyle the Cat are are. I hadn't considered that Kyle the Cat was a, a plant, if you will, one of the thousand eyes the Blood Raven has. Yeah. But they, given that I was already thinking about the idea that Blood Raven was maybe testing people out, he almost wants people to say bad things about him so he knows yeah. <laughs> who to punish later. And, and he might be particularly intrigued by Duncan Egg's presence here. Kyle the Cat may have simply not recognized them. And one way or the other might be doing what Blood Raven is doing, which is getting people to incriminate themselves, yeah. you know? And he's just so, like, un- so unthreatening. Like, the- he's the most unthreatening character in this whole story, right? Um, mm-hmm. As far as adults. And uh, so it's interesting. I don't know. I just thought, I-, I don't think there's enough to go on, but I thought it was worth considering. Um, and it's regard, and it's fitting that a cat, Kylie Cat, would be hanging out with a bird and a ball because those are common cat toys, right? So <laughs> that is pretty good. <laughs> Maynard Plum. So let's quickly go over some of the evidence that he's Blood Raven. I think maybe some people aren't fully sold on it. I'm 100% sold on it. When you add all the evidence up, it's pretty overwhelming. Some of you may not have done that, though. And that may, you may not be overwhelmed. Let's see if we can do that. He wears a big brooch of moonstone as big as a hen's egg, which parallels the big square cut ruby Melisandre has when Mance is disguised as Rattleshirt. And in general, there's rubies associated with Melisandre and her glamours. She has one on her own body, of course, uh, and she is herself glamoured, most certainly. There's that awesome joke when someone says, if the stories were true, we'd all be bastards of King Aegon, you know, and Maynard says, who's to say we're not? Well, (laughs) if he's (laughs) Bloodraven, he definitely is. (laughs) When Dunk is hazy, when he's been stabbed and is losing blood after his encounter with Cockshaw, Maynard doesn't look quite right to him. And he says he sees a hooded shape and a single pale white eye, which that is very blood raven-y. But then he realizes he was just looking at the moonstone brooch, which is a really neat way to do it because the brooch is supposedly the magical focal point for the glamour yeah. in the first place. So that's really neat that that's the thing that drew his attention as an eye. He's like, oh, I was just looking at the jewel, but the jewel is... Or were you? <laughs> yeah, so that is cool. And then he has that, you know, he's, he's wearing a cloak. He's always hooded. He doesn't fight in the tournament. He vanishes right when Bloodraven shows up. Uh, they both use the same phrase, nest of adders, referring to the White Walls conspiracy, which is a pretty specific phrase. And no one else says that. And there's also Maynard notes, he knows a lot about things. He, Maynard knows or is pointing out that Butterwell is he's explaining all his motivations, you know, like very deeply. And he says, started wondering if he had chosen the wrong side and how much Blood Raven knows of this conspiracy. And he goes, oh, the answer is quite a lot. <laughs> <laughs> it's like Maynard Plum says Blood Raven knows quite a lot about this because he is <laughs> the man who knows quite a lot. And he clearly knew ahead of time. And he says, when Dunk asks, who is he? He says, he's a friend. You know, there's all this. It's really quite, and that's not even all of it. There's so, <laughs> I have a question then. Sean, did you go into this knowing? Was there a moment you remember realizing? Or did you know already? I didn't. I didn't the first time. Ah, nice. And I don't think that I put it together the first time either, but I think Rita clued me into it. And so then I'm like, 
oh man, it's so obvious. So, you know, once you know, like, oh, of course. It's <laughs> yeah. kind of R plus L equals J. It's, it's a much smaller scale than that, but it's like, it's, you could, you can miss that. Like, it's not hard to miss R plus L equals J. Yeah. Once you're yeah. on that track, it's overwhelming. You're like, whoa, there is a lot of evidence for this. <laughs> you know, another thing that I, uh, wedding, another good example of that, it's like, man, there is a lot. I think it might be a weak clue as to who he is, but uh, it might be a clue as to who he is. And given who we believe he is, it is very noteworthy that he does at least have an opinion, a seemingly well-informed opinion on the Ironborn. Yes, right? that too. Like we've, we've brought up a lot of times how come Blood Raven isn't helping the, the West and the North versus the Ironborn. And we even speculated that maybe he is in ways that we don't know or that even are done secretly. And maybe part of why he isn't is because he's frustrated with what they're doing. Like, I'm not going to send your troops for money if you guys aren't going to do it right. You need to go attack them on the water. Yeah. Very good point. Anyway, that was very interesting, whether it is uh, some insight into Blood Raven and his perspective on what's happening over there or a clue is to why would this hedge knight have such good advice about how to deal with this foreign affair, foreign, you know, not form, but distant matter. You know? And it's important to know too that Dunk, when he says his gives his opinion, Dunk is like, "Yeah, that sounds it right." He sounds like he's making yeah. a good point. <laughs> <laughs> uh, also, there aren't a lot of Westermen here. This is attorney of mostly people from the Reach and and the Riverlands, which is a kind of uh, a good choice for picking a house. Plum, they're a Western house, so there's a little less likelihood of someone knowing the house and being able to be like recognize it. But even if they did recognize him. There's a li- he, he even has a bit of an excuse here. Plum, are you kin to Lord Viserys Plum, sir? Distantly, confessed Sir Maynard, a tall, thin, stoop-shouldered man with long, straight flaxen hair, though I doubt that his lordship would admit to it. So there's his sort of out. He's like, oh, yeah, that's why they won't have heard of me, because, you know, he won't admit to it, not because I don't exist. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you're right. When we talked about it at the beginning, it's, a, it's joyous and hilarious, all the things people say to his face, not knowing who he is. It's hilarious. Well, you're right about it. It's so much fun on Riri being able to see all that. Uh, but, on, but turn it around. Like, Egg. When Egg asks that question, what's going through Blood Raven's head? He's like, what the hell is Makar's kid doing here? Because <laughs> you, know, you know he recognizes him, right? Like, he, he, he yeah. recognizes the pearl. This is a guy who's very cognizant of details. He's on the lookout for all sorts of things. He already knows the rumors about Egg being out there. Like, he's got spies, thousand eyes on one. Like, he knows, you know? <laughs> I've wondered if he doesn't necessarily know rumors of Egg being out there. He might be very consciously aware of it. I, yeah. I, I, yeah. I don't know for sure. So, and that yeah. goes to show that, that some of that was exaggerated. Like, you, you, you hear about the rumor of the man, and the rumor of the man, and the actual, when you actually meet the person, a lot of those rumors fall away. And there's other interesting things instead. Like, yeah, clearly, Blood Raven wasn't going to kidnap Egg and hold him hostage because he could have. And he's like, nah, you know, go ahead. Have some gold, you know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so it's like, yeah, so this guy isn't quite as, you know, ruthless as people were saying. Not that he's not ruthless, but it was exaggerated. I would like to point out something, though, really quick. Sure. Um, we were talking about that Viserys line. I don't think we ever clarified for anyone who doesn't realize that Viserys Plum is a son of Elena Targaryen. I, I just want to make that okay. clear that that's why when Egg's asking about that, he's like, oh, are you related to There's, him? So there is, yeah, the plums and actually so have Targaryen. Yeah, literally, B- Blood Raven is related to him. To make that clear, obviously, Viserys Plum wouldn't want, he wouldn't recognize that a bastard is related to him who is legitimate. Yeah, yeah, et cetera. 
yeah, even as Blood Raven, he still might not, uh, yeah, yeah. want to be associated or whatever. Yeah. Here's another great sort of tongue in cheek comment. It's sort of vaguely like Ned uh, recognizing that something's up with Varus. Uh, it's similar again because we've compared Ned and Dunk here as being fish out of water. You know, they're they're not really well suited for intrigue, although they are suited for a lot of other things quite well. And so here's this great line. There was something about Plump that troubled him. He could be a robber knight for all we know. Warning only seemed to make Sir Maynard more interesting to Egg. I never knew a robber knight. Do you think he means to rob the dragon's egg? <laughs> yes, in fact, <laughs> he does indeed mean to rob the dragon's egg, and he succeeds. <laughs> you think that Bloodraven ended up with the egg? The dwarves stole it. Uh, those dwarves were in his employ. Oh, okay. I, I thought the dwarves in it. That must be something we know externally yeah. from this story. Well, he he, okay. he says, he mentions it. How Remember, they said, how was the egg stolen? And he's like, well, you know, if it were me, you know, you could, someone, like, no, no could fit in I that see. privy shaft, but, you know, a troop of comic dwarves. I remember, and Dunk notices how terrible they smell. Like yeah, I, I pieced together that. the dwarves did. I didn't piece together they did it on Blood Raven's behalf yeah, he, or yeah, on his it, it's, request or whatever. Which is yeah. awesome. We'll talk about it later because this is so much later in the story, but it's another example of hired dwarfs at an event, at a wedding that are actually hmm. up to something. <laughs> or someone... Maybe another reason to give this wedding a color name also. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. The purple <laughs> wedding has a little uh, connection point here too. So that's really cool. Uh, he, he does that. A part of that is just kind of letting the conspiracy collapse in and on itself. He causes them to fight amongst each other rather than filling blood of his own allies. It's pretty clever how he undoes this whole thing. But, but that's coming later. But this does set it up. It's a nice little comment to set it up. Here's another clue. Maynard gives us a, a nice statement on what he thinks about the Butterwells. And boy, he knows a lot. <laughs> his wealth is all from cows, said Maynard Plum. He got to take a swollen udder for his arms. These butterwells have milk running in their veins, and the phrase are no better. This will be a marriage of cattle thieves and toll collectors, one lot of coin clinkers joining with another. When the black dragon rose, this lord of cows sent one son to Damon, one to Daron, to make certain there was a butterwell on the winning side. Both perished on a redgrass field, and his youngest died in the spring. That's why he's making this new marriage. Unless this new wife gives him a son, Butterswell, Butterwell's name will die with him. So constantly... Maynard Plum just like has all this information, including he's also the guy that explains how the marriage was formed in the first place. He's like that. He points at young Walter Frey. He's like, that's the kid that made this marriage. Like, how does this hedge knight know all this stuff, right? Yeah. Like no one else knew <laughs> that. So it's really, yeah, just more evidence that this guy is way more, way deeper in it. And also just his disdain for these houses too, partly because he's, he knows they're traitors, but also it's a little bit of the Targaryen, like we're the royals and... These guys are yeah. just merchants. Yeah. But you, you see that with the phrase in modern times, too, where they're like, yeah, these phrases are just toll collectors. Yeah. It's really uh, <laughs> the, the stigma. These, the stigma of, from other noble houses is still attached to them because they look down on people who make their wealth through, through profit motives rather than through conquest and conquering taxing. and murder. Yep. Yeah. No, it's I don't ridiculous. Know. <laughs> it's really quite ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> these attitudes are like, ah, you guys, come on now. So let's talk about Fireball for a second. Really interesting character who is, he's come up before, but we saved a lot of the talk about him for now because we knew we would have this character with this uh, strong connection to him. So he was killed the day before the Redgrass Field battle. He was mastered arms at the Red Keep, so he was a, a good bit older than a lot of them, but still in prime fighting condition, a great warrior. He trained Damon Blackfire how to fight. He trained Bittersteel how to fight. He trained 
Bloodraven had a fight. He was promised a spot in the King's Guard, but didn't get it. And part, that was part of the reason he turned. Uh, he, he felt betrayed on that. He's sort of a Kristen Cole type. He's killed by arrows. He's never beaten in battle directly. Instead of being a guy who's in the King's Guard that starts this huge rebellion, he didn't get in the King's Guard, and that was part of his motivation for starting this huge rebellion. So big Civil War causers. Kristen Cole also spent a ton of time in the Red Keep, famous warrior, all that other stuff. So a lot of parallels there. And whether or not he's actually Glendon Ball's dad, like a lot of things, it, it doesn't necessarily matter. Uh, it's important to have that reference. Obviously, he's the link. He's a connection. He thinks he's his dad. He's inspired by the man. He thinks he's his dad. And of course, he is a neat character. He's uh, a good kid. He reminds me a little bit of Charlie Day from It's Always Sunny, or uh, Charlie Kelly, because this, he was born in a brothel. Always, people are always trying to mock him for that, and he's always in denial about it, just like, just like <laughs> it, It's Always Sunny. Called Night of the Pussy Willows. Um, yeah, not the most flattering title. What do you, what, let's start with just your first impression of Glendon Ball. One of the reasons I want to spend a little more time on this character is he leaves with them, and there's a very good chance he's part of future stories. One theory is that he'll be in Egg's Kingsguard. Like he says, I want to claim the white cloak promised to my father. How about this? This would be the way to it, maybe. Doesn't Dunk say something like, yours like to be on the Kingsguard as I am? Yep. Is it there a line yes, like there that too, is. right? Yes. I think that's a strong clue for Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Good catch, yeah. good catch. Very true, yeah. I think Glenda Ball eats a lot of stickers. <laughs> I could see. <laughs> I chose that, that quote, Sean, that you just mentioned as the description oh, yeah. for um, the Facebook post this week, actually. <laughs> We're on the same page. Yeah, I, I like the... Not that I don't like this character but what i mean is i like this character i like his role in, in the writing yeah uh, the i i appreciate that he starts off being maybe a little suspicious to the reader right he's got a little orneriness and a little bit of arrogance a lot it, of attitude it, yeah attitude yeah there you go um uh it, you, at one point at the stumps you almost think there might be a fight yeah right it's like everyone's like oh hold on who is someone gonna say the wrong thing here and uh prickly and he's kind of at the root well. of it yeah so, so we start off being a little suspicious of him. And he he is maybe, even if he's not like a bad or evil person, he's maybe a little irresponsible or arrogant. And even if maybe he's treated unfairly, we see other people treated unfairly that are still more kind or humble, like Dunk, right? Yeah. But in the end, he doesn't deserve to be tortured like he was, right? right. He doesn't deserve the constant public embarrassment and an even torture that ends up coming, even if maybe you were frustrated with his character. So it's a good sort of progression for George to create someone that maybe we're a little irked with, but then someone that we're, we want to defend. And I will tell you, it might be one of my, I, I have a hard time picking the whole series to my, my three favorite lines. I'll give my favorite line from each one. The first one is when Baylor says, God's will let us know. Mm. I like that one. And then the second one is when Egg says, Red Widow gave you a whole clout in the ear. <laughs> <laughs> and it's and this one, it's when uh when uh Dunk says justice for Glendon Ball. Like, yeah, I fill myself well with emotion in that moment. Yeah, so. that was good. That is really good. Yeah, we'll, we'll have we'll have a lot of things to say about that moment when we get to it and the things that lead to that moment as well. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a good character. You're right. I like the way you put it, that it's it's not just the character, but his place in the story, the way he's used, the things he suggests, the the themes he 
helps bring to the front. Like the whole class issue, man, the way that he's raised to really feel this level of pride to really be in this society, but really be pushed to the bottom of it. But to know he has the ability, the defining trait, like that his martial ability does have the power to raise him above a lot of that mockery if he gets the chance. And furthermore, you get the idea, much like we've mentioned for a couple other characters like Loris, that he worked really hard at it. Yeah, right. yeah, you're right. And he, he doesn't have like a master of arms of castles training him, right? Great and he point. doesn't have wealth or even a great size of dunk. He's just been very determined and very committed. So Yeah, Nina made a similar point about how this really by itself, you know, in a kind of an oblique way, adds even more to the Night of the Laughing Tree theory that it's Liana because there's just so much. George just is very careful to here and there drop references that jousting is three-quarters horsemanship, which is a specific line he's used. Good example. Glendon Ball probably didn't do a ton of jousting when he was a kid, but he did a lot of horse riding. That's the thing we know he, because he worked with horses, that's the thing we know he is an expert at. And he carried a lance when he could, but the horses, you know, he's like Harwin or, or one of those guys that that's his whole upbringing. It's horses. So yeah, gotta like that. I'll briefly repeat the point here that Glendon and Gendry and Bella all have a, a lot in common being bastards. Gendry wasn't born in a brothel, but he sort of thinks of himself sort of that way. And these hidden parentage stuff, you know, they even kind of Gendry, Glendon, yeah, the names are a little similar. <laughs> I like this quote that you have here. The girl did have hair like the old kings, Arya thought. Great thick mop of it, as black as coal. That doesn't mean anything, though. Gendry has the same kind of hair, too. <laughs> uh, yeah, I grabbed that quote because <laughs> also speaking of coloring, uh, White Walls is white because of the marble hauled from the veil at great expense, they say. But it's also milk colored. So <laughs> you've got the milk castle. It is White Walls, the castle that milk built. People had been talking in the chat like, you know, we have the red wedding. What's this one? You know, the white wedding. It's a nice day for a <laughs> white wedding. <laughs> Yeah, Damon is, does have a Billy wedding, Idol maybe? thing going on. What's that? The cream wedding. <laughs> cream wedding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the fiddle right there. He's fiddling. <laughs> <laughs> Dunk claims to be even better with axe than with sword, but we have yet to see that. So that is absolutely groundwork. I wonder if that even maybe could be connected to the foreshadowing that he'll fight in a melee. Because if he goes into a melee, it would be great if he had an axe instead of a sword, you know, like a blunted axe. Because big strong guy like that with all his force of his weight and height behind it with all the, the momentum you can build with a long swing with you when you have big arms like that. Yeah. Definite setup. Did you notice that the line about being better with an axe? Yeah, I thought about that. I, I thought a little bit about uh, why he would be using a sword instead of an axe. And I, I sort of concluded that maybe when you're not fully armored, parrying is more important with an axe someone can hit you with a sword and you can take the blow with your armor and swing back with your axe, maybe with more force it could crunch through armor than a sword could. Yeah. But when you're not fully armored, the pairing ability of a sword becomes more important. I, it is interesting to think if or when or what scenario we might see Dunk in combat with an axe with. Also, does even own one? I haven't heard one mention no, he of it. Yeah, that's good. And point. I wonder <laughs> if enough time goes by with him not even owning it, his skills might wane, and he might be better with the sword than he realizes relative to the axe, yeah. or worse with the axe than he realizes yeah, the next time it comes up. Good point, yeah. Could be, could be. Uh, if we return to the marriage is a melee joke um, that 
Maynard Plum jokes about that. He's like, a melee wouldn't be appropriate to have a, a, ma- a marriage at a melee. And Maynard Plum makes the joke, a marriage is a melee. And then and Cersei <laughs> actually says that. She says, my marriage to Robert was a melee. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> that comes not too long after Robert hits her. So, I mean, yeah. I mean, it, it, it wasn't always so literal, but, but geez, Robert. <laughs> now, um... Also, a reference sort of this is a mention, another mention from Julie A, a point here that I saved for near the ending. She noted something similar that you cited for a different reason. She says, I love, love the exchange between Dunk and Egg after Dunk decides not to eat at the inn when they arrive by the lake. Egg asking if he can eat his boot instead because the salt beef is tougher and that soaking the beef in the trough, his feet water, could actually improve the taste. (laughs) (laughs) And if you take note of in the book, the illustration in the Night of Seven Kingdoms, which he has his, so it's like, she might know it's a future king soaking his feet in a trough. It's pretty, that's <laughs> 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 a great image, great drawing. I forgot another point I wanted to make earlier, okay. thinking about identities. Yeah. And, and tying back into a thing we talked about before the education of a king yeah. when they're at the ferry. I think Egg is just joking. I think he's learned the lesson. When he says, uh, we can move to the front of the line if we use my boot. Yeah, I don't think you know? he's serious. I think I agree with you there. Yeah, yeah, I don't think so either. But it is still drawing attention to his true identity and his realization of how the rest of the world behaves. You got to wait in line. Mm. You don't get to just go to the front because you're the prince. So Yeah. Yeah, that's the sort of thing I think in the show we'll get to hear his delivery on that and really get his snarkiness. But that's also, yeah. we're all talking about all these hidden identities. And here we go in the chat. We were asking people to share their hidden identities with us. <laughs> That's true. Wow, we, we combined the theme more than we even realized. Wow. At some point, just all of the innuendo. Yeah. Something. Nina's already so doing a list of the innuendo. Okay, already I already got her have on the a list. long list, I must say. Yeah, it is. So we'll, we'll, we'll do... I have a I'll long have list. I'll send it to you, I guess. <laughs> yes, that's a good example of innuendo, yes. Sean's <laughs> right in it here. <laughs> So yeah, we'll 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 that one we'll present later because there hasn't even been one yet uh, to this point in the story, <laughs> but there's going to be a lot. But here's a great line: uh, a burn from Egg. He says, "You're not thinking of entering the lists, are you, sir?" Might be it's time. It's not, sir. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then you no. Know, Rita pointed out also how well. How clever Egg is, right? And maybe how well they know each other. They've been traveling together for a while, but but in, in Dunk's mind, he's like wondering if it might be a good idea. Egg can already tell that he's decided. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Like Egg knows Dunk better than he knows he's himself. Like, he's you know? going to think he's good at this. He's going to do it. And that's just not a good idea. Like I got to start talking him out of it now yeah. before this idea really takes hold and he's decided it's too late. Like he might still, there might still be a chance of stopping him. <laughs> nope, there, there wasn't. There was narrator. There was no chance of stopping <laughs> Um, and we, I, I believe we talked about this one earlier. Uh, when Dunk asks Egg where his egg came from, what's the response? From a dragon, sir. <laughs> they put it in my cradle. Like, oh, right. Yeah, you're a Targaryen. Oh, yeah, prince. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Y'all do that. That's right. Eggs, cradles. So actually, another thing, talk about something else that, that we're, we're doing a running count of. This one's already done. I did a clout in the ear count. Way to finish off today. In the Hedge Knight, there's only two. And, and when I say click out in the ear, I just mean the phrase appears. It doesn't 
there is only one half clout actually given in all of them. He doesn't, and it's it's only to prevent more violence. If you recall, Egg has a spear at his throat, and Dunk, that's the one time Dunk actually hits him. <laughs> because he's afraid Egg will provoke the guy with the spear. You're counting all the times they said clout, not just with ear, right? Clout in the ear. No, clout Only in the ear. Only clout in the ear, not, not just clout. No, if the if the phrase clout and ear appear, doesn't it say okay. clout in the ear or you need a clout in the ear or clout on the ear? Because okay. somebody says on. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, and then there's some of them are like, include, that includes egg responding. He's like, you already gave me a clout in the ear. <laughs> you know? <laughs> so the phrase comes up the most in the sworn sword, 13 times and then eight times here in the mystery night. Um, and of course, in this story, Uthor Underleaf actually does clout his squire in the side of the head. It doesn't say ear. It's in the side of the head. And he hits him hard. And it's like, it reminds us that Dunk doesn't really do it. Yeah, that was about to be my question. It. was like, what about if they say head? Or yeah. There could be other ones that we missed because I didn't know what phrase to search for. Yeah. So yeah, it's I possible just, I missed one. I just one. did a search. I was like, what is in the head tonight? Three clouts in the head tonight and one is in the head. So yeah. that's... Arya twice in a Game of Thrones Arya three the phrase comes up, and Theon actually clouts Wex in the ear. <laughs> also in uh, or in a Clash of Kings that happens. So, yep, that's that's that. There's a moment when when this discussion about Targaryens is going on, and Dunk is worried about Egg. You know, he's like looking at him. Right, is he going to say something? How's he handling this discussion? He thinks so, but and Egg doesn't say anything. Perhaps he's learned to hold that tongue of his. And then there's another moment when Dunk pinches his lips, says, Hold your tongue, you know, when he's worried about Egg's gonna say something. <laughs> so then at the, the feast, there's a, a moment when Egg's like looking at Dunk suspiciously. And he's like, you know, oh, you know, and he's like, What, what, why are you looking at me this way? And Egg says, I could tell you, but I need to learn to hold my tongue. <laughs> <laughs> That's really good, yeah. <laughs> Like, I definitely would have gotten clouded if I had said it. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Nice. All right. Well, one of the episodes that we mentioned from our past catalog is the Three-Eyed Blood Raven. That's one that we haven't mentioned a lot in these streams, but it's certainly as relevant as it's going to be given this episode, actually meeting these characters on screen. That's something else I like about this story. Maester Aemon is mentioned. Blood Raven is mentioned, but they don't appear on screen. Uh, they only appear, only the only characters we see that are in A Song of Ice and Fire that appear on screen in both are in this story. We get Walder Frey and Blood Raven, and well, that's it. But <laughs> still, that's two, no, that's two characters. That's another thing I forgot to ask about. Something that I had asked you about in the past was where they got Maester. And oh, yeah. we concluded from, from Amon. Yeah. And I was even wondering like when that might have happened. We get the line here, I think at the stumps, that uh, I think it's a memory. That they had traveled from Dorne to Old Town, yeah, probably to see Amon at the Citadel. Yeah. We actually Maybe did. That's also when it got the horse. We yeah. actually did talk about this with Jim last week. But yes, you're right. Oh, okay, but you, cool, but you yeah. did. You you nailed it. That's exactly what it is. It's it's almost certain because because that's also when Dunk thinks about being measured recently. And Amon, he says that Maester, that Egg's brother, did it. Uh, the name. It's not like a hundred percent certain, but it's really hard to imagine it's something else because of the name and yeah. the timing and all that. So yeah, I, I gotta agree with you there. It's a good catch. Another thing that uh that I pondered on for a minute. There's a moment when Donk again thinking about Egg saying, you know, keeping his mouth shut. It's like that mouth of yours will get you killed someday. <laughs> me as well, most like. 
That might be some dark foreshadowing to the far future. Yeah, I mean, it's it's his his mouth might be a little oblique way of putting it, but his orders, his decision yeah. to host Summerhall and do all that stuff. Yeah, maybe mouth isn't the right exact word, but it's it's close enough. And we see <laughs> at this early stage how much Egg is already obsessing over these eggs. Yeah. His brother telling him about this prophecy. But, you know, we could see like Eggs, his whole life is like, moving toward this summer hall moment potentially yeah it's it's it is very dark foreshadowing you're right because it's not as as fun as this story is as fun as their interactions are yeah it's not going to end well (laughs) but it also won't end for a long time because when that happens they're going to be old older men dunk will be in his 60s so it's not like they won't have had full lives at least they'll have there's plenty of more memories to come in between so Hopefully I feel bad. I can't remember where this quote came from and i I, i know i'm not saying it exactly correct but it was along the lines of Every story is a tragedy if it lasts long enough. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah. yeah. And I, I want to think even if they die in Summer Hall, it doesn't necessarily mean their their lives were bad or their stories are tragic or dark even. You know, there's, uh, there's a lot of living before that moment comes. Point. Yeah. And uh, I don't know if just because that moment is tragic or they die, well, they're going to die eventually. You know, it doesn't take away from all the other richness of their lives. I mean, Egg would have been... 59 or 60 which you know yeah he's not yeah he's not easily old. could have died of a heart attack or yeah, yeah. He could have but it's not super old either yeah it's yeah. like that onion article from long ago world death rate still holding steady at 100 <laughs> percent i'm pretty sure i've even cited that before on our show but yeah <laughs> it definitely applies again unless you get into uh, characters like werewood network people and stuff i guess you could say maybe they don't die but hey that's not uh as far as I know, that doesn't exist in the real world. Yeah. <laughs> Non-fantastic human death rate holds strong at 100%. <laughs> Outside of fiction novels uh, <laughs> and other imaginations. Cool. Okay, folks. Well, Sean, uh, Shea, unless Sean or Shay has any final thoughts, we shall call this one a day. Sean, any final thoughts for today? Oh, uh, nothing particular. Cool. All right. Are you going to grab a kitten? <laughs> I suppose I could do that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So uh, while I'm saying thanks for everybody else, thanks to Nina for her invaluable thoughts. We had, we started a lot of discussions based on some of her ideas. Uh, thanks to the mods over at History of Westeros uh, Facebook group. Thanks to our Flick community, all the other folks commenting on Discord and Slack and Facebook and Twitter. You guys, and gals are really helping out and making this uh, group effort. Thanks as well to our friend Michael Clarfeld, aka Claradox. .de, that's his website, K-L-A-R-A-D-O-X. These maps and our video intro and a lot of other fine projects are his babies. Thanks as well to Kevin McLeod for the Valar Rebritus intro music, Joey Towns and Jesse Kowal for our regular intro outro music, our Benjineer for sound quality assistance. By the way, Benjineer sent me a message recently that said he is pretty confident that we're all going to really, really like this next Winds of Winter chapter installed. Oh, okay. We were just talking about in the chat, and I was like, I think it's stalled out. I haven't had an update lately, and I was just thinking that I needed to message him. No, he is. He he's pretty close, I think. But you know, he's he's an artist, so yeah, you know, no, there's perfection, sure. and you know, he, it's not he's not it's not exactly getting uh, paid a bunch of money for this. So, um, but yeah, he's he's excited, so that means we should be excited. And I'm excited. <laughs> Who is excited? Who is it? Ben. Ben. Uh, Anderson for the next huh? Winter Chapter audio project. That I'm excited because on. of Jet. 
Oh, Jet's uh, on did screen. Did we share the, no the news about Jet being a, a girl? We did. Yeah, okay, yeah, we cool. talked about that. She looks so pretty. <laughs> she is. She's purring. I don't know if you can uh, hear yeah, it. I, I my... can tell she looks happy. Yeah. That's that's very sweet. She's such a She's cat. probably, of, of the three cats, the most... Uh, Comfortable? Most enjoys being okay, held. Yeah. The most okay. Like, she almost instantly starts purring if you pick her up and pet her. <laughs> So like even if she's in asleep or in the middle of playing or anything, she's like, "Oh, you're gonna pick me up and pet me." Like, yeah, I accept. <laughs> I encourage this. <laughs> Very nice. Oh, you're someone like... in chat. Hello, child cat. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Cool. Okay, folks. Thanks again. We'll see you in two weeks for more Valar Reread.